0: Well, it's good to be with you and to um, meet the group of people that have Tony. And um, (laughs) I don't remember Thomas Boston conversation because all I remember is Tony. You know what I mean? I just couldn't remember. I couldn't believe that a guy like Tony existed. He was a wild man in Britain. So he's a wild man in America, but in Great Britain where everybody's quiet and subdued and proper, Tony was an extra wild man and... and, um, but we do share quite a lot of uh, not so important things in common. We do both uh, chase around a lot of old grave sites and dig up things and try to bring them home and and um, so we were swapping stories about which graves we've been to and how many fences we jumped to get to them and did we get in trouble or not but um, much more importantly it's, uh, that uh, Tony is known as a man that does love the Lord so glad to be here with you. Some of you have... Uh, well, what am I supposed to say? I have, th- uh, what did you say? Three three fine kids or something? All right, that's the end of that story. That's about it. I had three fine kids. Um, I, I grew up in Ohio, very godly family, Southern Baptist. So that meant we were the kind of the oddballs, you know. Everyone else in my family were Methodist and uh, Roman Catholic, so they didn't quite understand what Southern Baptist was. And um, my father surrendered to the ministry when I was in my teens. We moved south for him to go to school. I was a uh, self-righteous, self-indulged, lost, professing Christian, you know. And uh, around the age 20, while studying at a Bible college to go into the ministry, I realized that I was a fraud, and so the Lord kindly showed me myself and showed me himself. That, uh, after, after that and finishing college and seminary and pastoring just a couple years, went to Wales where we met Tony when he was there on a tour and uh, did the, the PhD there in the English and Welsh half of the Great Awakening, what they call the Evangelical Revival. So that's George Whitfield and the Welshman in, in distinction from John Wesley and uh, the group that he led. And then came back to the States and washed cars for a year and did whatever I could to find uh, work. And as I worked on the the, the doctorate and, and then was a part of a church plant. And so if you've watched the study, Behold Your God, then the people that are in that little room, the little room is just a cafe in town, but the people that are in that room are not people that are paid to come and listen. That's normally the way you would do it, but they are... Um, they're young people from the church who wanted to be there, and so they took turns being there. Um, I'm glad if you've seen this study. I'm glad you've seen the study before you saw me because at AFA, the, the company that published the, that paid for everything on that, um, I was supposed to give a, a short introduction to what is this study about, where are we going to, like, because we had started filming, but nobody at AFA knew what it was, so can you tell us something about what we're spending all that money on? And so... They called me and said, can you come give like a 20-minute introduction to the study? And I said, sure. Well, when I came in there, it was packed with all these ladies sitting on the front row in their 50s and 60s. And when I walked in and they announced that I was John Snyder, they all, all their heads and shoulders sunk. They thought it was John Snyder off the Dukes of Hazzard because <laughs> a- apparently he's religious now. And so they were so excited. They, they had books to be signed, and they were, see, so I walk in, and they all just go, Whoa, you know? and so, so I kind of had to climb out of the hole to begin with, so so you weren't expecting him, then we'll be, we'll be good. What I want us to do this weekend is um, all the, really all the talks that we'll have together are connected to the theme, and the theme is like the, the theme of the study, Beholding God. How How can we... How can you, if you're in a church that is a healthy church and a church that has truths that maybe other churches have not held on to so well, and so you, you in, in many ways, enjoy advantages from God that others don't have, how can you approach the Lord in such a way as to promote a deep and wonderful change in your own life, even if you've been a Christian for 30 or 40 years, or maybe it's just a few months? And what can you do, what would the Lord have you do in order to be equipped to be uh, more effective in bringing the gospel to those around you? So we're really talking about rethinking God and looking at some different passages. They're all connected. We have some basic looks at God. We have some warnings. If we aren't careful to adjust our life to who God says He is, and then there are some, hopefully some encouraging things as well. So if you're able to be at all the meetings or catch them later, then um, they, they are somewhat connected. Tonight I want us to think about a crisis, though. And I don't mean the crisis in, in the culture. That generally is what preachers rant on. I mean, you don't really have to do any studying during the week to rant and rave against Washington and Hollywood and the Internet. But I mean the crisis that's within the churches that really claim to be serious about doctrine and really have good words, the, the struggle that we feel in these kinds of settings, it's not that we don't have good words, it's that we're really struggling in our environment to get the right measure of those words. God, God is a weightless concept to people outside the church for the most part. I mean, there would have been a day when, uh, you know, the idea of a God-fearing kind of a person, a basically moral person who maybe though never really wonderfully altered by the gospel, he has this, this man has a concept that God does exist and I ought to live in, a, in such a way in case I have to stand before him. But that, that really has, is, has passed and in the culture around the church, God is weightless, but the more terrifying thing is that God has become weightless within the churches. Our biggest words that we have in our vocabulary, and we have some wildly big words, words that if they're not true, we must be insane. Words like new birth. I mean, do you think what people must think when we talk to them? I have been born again, we say to somebody. God has dealt with my soul, that invisible part that dwells within me somehow, and He has give, made me spiritually alive where I once was spiritually dead. I'm a whole new creation in God. Now, those are, those are great, as in large, those are, those are gigantic claims. We talk about things like hell and heaven and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and justification and the cross. and the words that we use are weightless. I would compare the average evangelical church's words when they're right words. I would compare it to, instead of uh, weighty and wonderful and effective words, I would say that generally speaking, on Sunday morning, the pastor's words carry no more real effective weight with us than a bunch of styrofoam props carry weight. And so, Instead of a pastor up front, just imagine a a, a skit and there are great big boulders and trees and landscape, and when the skit is over, you know what happens. Young people come out and they pick up the boulder, it's made out of styrofoam, and they carry it off. And really, I'm afraid that in many churches, that's how we've learned to treat God and the words that God has given us. So the crisis is within the church. That's the one I'm more worried about, not what goes on in Washington and Hollywood Now, there are, of course, problems when we try to reach outside the church. If God is a weightless concept to the culture, and our words, therefore, are weightless to people, when we witness to them at work or at family get-togethers or or at the ball field, then we have the problem of we, we seem not to be able to impact the culture. And Then comes another problem, and that is the temptation to take some kind of shortcut that maybe will work better than the old way. And so... We're offered a whole uh, array of new and exciting and effective ways to reach young people. When I was in college, I was hired to be a youth director. Um, I was only about 20 years old. I um, was hired to be a youth director of a church that had about 20 elderly people and no youth. Why did they hire me? So that they could get youth. But that's kind of the way we think, isn't it? Hire the youth guy... Hire somebody young. Young people will come. So they hired me, and no young people came. There are so many clever ways to make Christianity appear to work and to shortcut and to get around this problem of a weightless God, but none of them lastingly work, and none of them bring honor to God. They bring honor to man, and we we look around and say, who was the clever guy that thought this up? Joe did. Joe, would you go do a lot of conferences now? You're, you're, you're the one to rescue us. The good news is, of course, that in Scripture, repeatedly, men and women who love the Lord have found themselves in exactly this position. And so we're not left up to our imagination, and there's no reason to despair because we can go back to the Scriptures and see what did they do? And how did God deal with them in such a way so as to lay the foundation for a glorious restoration of Christianity in their day? Now, tonight I want us to look at just one example of that, and that is found in the life of Moses. So we need to turn to Exodus chapter 3, and I want to read the first 14 verses with you this evening. Exodus chapter 3, Moses is going to meet the Lord at the burning bush, He's already been kicked out of Egypt. He's fleed to Midian. And this man who's about to be so extraordinarily used by God is so amazingly ignorant of God. So in meeting the Lord, it's like a reintroduction. So let, let's just read that. I'm reading from the uh, New King James Version. So if, if you're a little different, you'll understand why. So Exodus chapter 3 in verse 1. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from the land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites, and the Amorites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Now, therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So he said, I will certainly be with you, and this will be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So that's the scene. We want to look at that uh, together tonight. When God says to Moses that he's to take Israel out of this great military power, Israel really is little more than 600,000 people who are sharecroppers, slaves of Egypt, they're brought out. They're going to be brought out of this mighty power. They're going to be brought into a land with other powers. And Moses gives God a request. What request would you give? I mean, you know, a nice big military would be helpful. Uh, Some great miraculous powers and angels. I mean, what would we ask? Well, we don't really ask because we're reading the Bible and we see immediately when we read Old Testament, we see felt boards and figurines on the felt board And we treat it as if it's not real. But what would you ask if you and your family and your children and your friends were risking death to bring out 600,000 people? And Moses' request seems at first strange, but I hope that by the end we'll understand that it's the request. And it's the request that you and I can ask tonight. And so what he asks him is this, if I go and say to the people, God sent me... To bring you out. They're going to ask me. Well um, who. Who am I going to tell them. It would be a great step forward. For all of us. In our religious culture. If when people came to us. And told us. I have a wonderful. uh, I have wonderful news. About how God's just going to fix all your problems. It would be a great question for us to say. Which God. Which God are you representing. I mean the God of American Television, with the name it and claim it, the God of American evangelicalism, not far from that, or the God of Scripture. So he asked God to unveil himself, who are you, and God gives an answer to this. And really, when God unveils himself, when he pulls back the curtains and he allows us to see himself as he really is, that really is the answer to all of our deepest questions. When we read the book of Job and we come to those last chapters, chapters 38 through 42, And Job has been through so many struggles and such suffering, and all the questions and the agonizing and the statements like, I wish I knew where God lived. I wish I could reach him. I wish I could present my case before him at his court. But he's high above me. How can I do that? The answer to all Job's questions, really, is that he meets the Lord again. And he says, Now I know him. It's like I've seen him, where everything I knew before about God was like just a rumor. And suddenly, the questions seem small. Now, God unveils himself to Moses here in this strange description. I am who I am. The I am has sent you, has sent me. Sorry, is sending you. Up to this point, the Lord has not used this phrase that we use. It's, of course, the Hebrew word, which we don't know how to pronounce any longer. The Jews don't know how to pronounce it. We have anglicized it long ago. The Germans anglicized it and gave the word Jehovah, and so if you've grown up in church, you might have heard a lot about Jehovah, and so that, in my mind, that's the word behind the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, the proper name here that God gives, but then if you're a little younger, you might think of Yahweh or Yahweh, so whichever, we don't know how to pronounce that word, but the Hebrew word behind that is the word for I am, I exist, and I will continue to be what I always have been. And that's the one that's sending you. Up to this point, God hasn't used this title frequently. He has revealed himself as El Shaddai or as the Lord God Almighty, like to Abraham walk before me and be perfect. You're going to leave your land. I have a wonderful place for you. I am the Lord God Almighty or all sufficient. And with that name, Abraham had all he needed to obey. So, when we come to a passage like this, there's a couple of things we want to do. We want to ask ourselves two questions. Number one, what is it that God is really saying about himself here? Because it's our God, and we want to know him as he really is. But number two, why is he saying it here? So in a sense, we, we don't just have God teaching us about himself, but we also have God teaching us how we ought to apply what he says about himself. Why does God say this at this point in the history of his redemption. Why now? Why not later or earlier? What is it about Israel's need that calls for this kind of unveiling? And if we can understand that, then we have some idea of how we ought to apply this simple statement, I am who I am has sent you. Now, there's so much in that description, but I want to limit it to three implications. When God says, I am that I am, or I am who I am, What does he mean? Well, number one, our God is incomprehensible. The Egyptians had hundreds of gods, and they all had names. You could pronounce them. You could know them. That was easy. I mean, they didn't really exist. But when the living God is asked by Moses, so tell me your name, he doesn't get some fancy name. He doesn't even get a title like the king or the redeemer or the faithful one. He gets this statement, I exist, I am, and I will continue to be always what I have been. God is so essentially and morally above Moses that Moses cannot understand any name that God might have to give to him. Can any being really figure God out? He is incomprehensible is the word we use for God. So if we were to say, If we go back to humanity before it fell, did Adam have God figured out? No, Adam walked with God in the cool of the day, but God was still infinitely above Adam's comprehension. He could know God. He could know God in a vital, experiential way, but he could not figure God out. If we go to the great theologians of history and we gather them all together in one room, all right, all the heroes of your pastor, we get them all together and we say to them, we'd like for you to study one thing like God's omnipresence or his eternality God is timeless and we say now that's your job we want you to study that and they study that for the rest of their life but at the end of their life they're no closer even though they may understand the eternity of God better they are no closer to figuring God out than they were when they started a number of years ago I did a series in the little church where I pastor on the attributes of God and in this series I intended to do 12 weeks well it turned into three years, and I really didn't mean to do that, but everyone was happy, and I was very happy with it. I feel like the Lord used that, so we spent two months on each attribute. At the end of three years, everyone understood God a little better, I hope, but nobody, nobody was any closer to fully figuring Him out. The infinite God is not comprehended by anyone. Except who? Except himself. Perfect self-knowledge is God's attribute alone. He knows himself, but nobody else knows him perfectly. No angel, no saint in heaven, no theologian on earth. When Moses says, tell me your name, God says to him, essentially, you cannot understand me in that way. I am We see this all through scripture in different ways. Let me just give you a couple of illustrations. One is when people ask the name of God and he won't give them his name. So we see when we're talking about name, we're not just talking about a label, but of course we're talking about an expression of God's character. What kind of a God are you? So in Genesis 32, Jacob wrestles with the angel of the Lord. At the end of the wrestling match, he says to him, tell me your name, I pray. And the angel says, why is it that you ask my name? We believe that. That's a picture of uh, a theophany, an appearance of God in the Old Testament. So God asks him, why do you ask my name? And he doesn't tell him his name, but he blesses him and leaves him. In Judges chapter 13, the angel of the Lord again visits the parents. This time he's visiting the parents of Samson. And Manoah says to the angel of the Lord, well, what is your name? So that when your words come to pass, we may honor you. And the angel of the Lord says, why do you ask my name, seeing it's wonderful? And he doesn't tell him. In Revelation 19, we see Christ coming with the saints in glory. And the Bible says this, I saw heaven open. Behold, on a white horse, he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire. On his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. Now these just illustrate what we find in other places. Listen to what Job says, Job chapter 11. Can you search out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limits of the Almighty? They are higher than heaven, what can you do? Deeper than Sheol, what can you know? Their measure is longer than the earth. And broader than the sea. Or again. He says in chapter 36. Behold God is great. And we do not know him. Nor can the number of his years be discovered. But you can look in the New Testament. First Timothy 6. God dwells in an unapproachable light. Paul tells the young pastor. Whom no man has seen nor can see. To whom be honor and everlasting power. The incomprehensible God. So if you ask God. Well tell me your name. And he says to you, I am that I am. One of the things we immediately are struck with is he is beyond the comprehension of his people. Now, there are a couple of applications before we go any further. One is this. One of the great marks of really growing in your biblical understanding, in becoming a real theologian, is that you are becoming ever increasingly aware of how little you really know The infinite God. Becoming aware of how ignorant we are is a real mark. Socrates, all right, now I don't do a lot of reading in Socrates, so I'm not even going to pretend, but Socrates said that the sum of all of his learning was that he knew that he knew nothing. When he went to the city of Athens... He spoke to them about the gods. He spoke to them about the deity of the unknown God. And we know that because in the book of Acts, when Paul shows up, they have built an altar to the unknown God. People, apart from the work of Jesus Christ, miraculously changing us, even with the Bible in our hands, every human endeavor in religion, whatever religion, ought to have painted above it the altar to an unknown God because he's beyond us. Now, isn't Christianity a religion in which God has revealed himself? Certainly it is. It is the only one. But what has God revealed of himself? Well, we start here. I am the I am. I am the incomprehensibly transcendent God that you may know through the work of my son, but that you may never figure out. Isaac Watts wrote this, Earth from afar has heard his fame, and worms have learned to lisp his name. Now, that's great for singing hymns, but it's just not great if you're publishing a book. I mean, we don't like to say, folks, I've worked for years on this study, and I'm now printing a book, and I want you to know I, am, I have finally reached the level of an infant who can lisp a few things about God. But really, that's as far as we'll ever get. The greatest mark of theology, holy, humble, believing awareness of how ignorant we are. Now, I'm not saying we don't have the truth about God and we walk around and pretend like we're all searchers and we just kind of vaguely feel about out there and in here to try to figure out God. That certainly is not Christianity. Doctrine has been given to us in Scripture. The Spirit has been given to us to teach us. And it's not that doctrine isn't important, it's just that the first doctrine we really need to start with is that there is a being who exists and he is incomprehensibly great. Now, if God is incomprehensible, he's also incomparable. That means he's in a category all to himself. And when we compare God to other things, when the scripture compares God to other things, he's greater than the mountains, he's, he's you know, he... He, his life is longer than the generations of men. A thousand years in humanity, they're like, a, they're like a moment to God. So when we use these comparisons, you do understand that because God is infinite, these are, these are baby talk. God is stooping down and letting us grab hold of little things. Job says it this way. God, when we see him in what he, we see his activity, we read about it in the Bible, we have some knowledge of God, we can see God at work and we know something about God by what he does and how he does it, but Job says, these are the the mere whispers of God, they are the edges of his ways. Now think of that illustration, no matter how long we study, even in heaven, while our knowledge of God must expand exponentially and wonderfully as we drink in who he really is, and there's no sin to cloud our thoughts and our ability to grasp what he says, but even in heaven, after a thousand, thousand years, we will only have the whispers and the edge. If you walk into a large room and you sit down at a table, let's say you go to a restaurant, you sit down at a table and there's a... There's a group of fellows over there, they're talking about something and they say something you like, all right? So let's say your favorite sports team or what's happening with Obamacare and you think, oh, I'm going to listen. So you, you kind of, at your, you're at your table, they're at another table, so you kind of just lean and you quit making noise and you, if they start to whisper, you catch a few words, but all you do is catch a few words. If you went out of that building and said, I understand everything they talked about, you'd be wrong. No, you've, You caught a few words from a conversation because you only heard the whispers. If we leave our Bible studies and our new books that we buy and read and walk out to the world and say, I really feel like we've got God pretty much figured out, then we're as silly as the person that heard a few words of a whispered conversation. The other thing Job says, the edges of his ways, imagine an infant and the dad walks past the infant, all right? So infants on the floor where he or she always is, not crawling yet, and Dad walks by on the way to work. Dad comes in after he goes to work. And so the infant knows this. That's dad's shoe. That's dad's pant leg, the bottom few inches. But that's all the infant really knows. If that infant could roll over and talk and said to his cousin, You know, I really feel like I figured dad out. He goes out that way in the morning and comes in. How much do you know about your dad at a point like that? Well, you know a little, but it's only the edges. If you come up to America on the Mayflower and you see this stretch of sand and, and the edge of this great continent, and you see trees and some rivers, and if you turn to the person next to you and say, you know, I really feel like I figured out the continent of America, North America, then how ignorant we would be. But it's the same way with our theology. We have God unveiling to us himself, and we can know him, but we can never figure him out. So you have to ask yourself, is that where you are? Are you made humble by the awareness that God that you belong to is so glorious that you have not figured him out? Do you find it strange that that's one of the things that the people of Israel needed to know if they were going to follow Moses? The first thing you need to know, Moses, is you can never really know me like, like you think you can. The second thing we see in his name is that he is the self-existing God. I am. The I am. God, unlike all of us, of course, has no origin and he has no ending. He's timeless. He does not owe his existence to anyone. God does not exist by another's aid. God does not continue to exist by effort. God essentially is existence. He is the I am. No one else in this room is like that. It was not essential for me to exist. It's not essential for you to exist. But it is essential that God exists because that's part of what it is to be God. God is and he must be. And he exists without the help of any other. He is independent. Do you remember what Paul asks when we're talking about the one that is the I am who is self-existing Paul asks us, "Did any of you Romans in Romans chapter eleven, any of you Roman Christians give God counsel? No did any of you give him anything so that he, he should pay you back? Anybody loan God anything lately? No because he is self-sufficient self-existent. God is the source of. All other existence, but nobody is the source of his existence. So think about this. Moses is about to go into Egypt. He's going to say to Pharaoh, my God says, let the people go. Pharaoh's going to say, I don't even know your God. Moses can't point to a statue or a picture. Pharaoh can point to hundreds of statues and say, say, my gods say I'm not to let you go. Every statue, every temple, every pyramid built to the arrogance of Egypt the atoms in every one of those structures, the molecules are being held in existence by Moses' as God. But no one holds God in existence. He's self-existing. He is unchanging. I am that I am. I always will be what I always have been. That's how some have translated that Hebrew phrase. God endures unchanging. None of us are like that. You think about the greatest that humanity achieves. You, you see a young person, and they're bright, and they have a lot of promise. They grow, they, they, they are wise, they exert themselves, they work hard, they learn, they do whatever they're supposed to do in their field, and they excel in their field, and they reach a certain level of competence and success and achievement. And as soon as their achievements begin to be recognized by the world, they begin to decline as they get old, and their mind isn't quite as sharp as it used to be, or their body as an athlete isn't what it used to be, and before long, they are humiliated by this body and this mind, and then they're gone, and for a while, they're remembered, but after a while, no one remembers. Think of nations. Nations are born, so to speak. They grow. They flourish. Maybe if they're one of those rare nations, they become world powers. They're feared and admired and looked to, and then they begin to decline, and they pass away, and only people with, with wrinkled, puckered eyes and glasses and bent over shoulders sitting in the libraries preparing for the next lecture, even though they ever were. Our God endures unchanging on. Malachi says it. I am Jehovah, Jehovah. I do not change, I am the Lord, I am the I am. The psalmist says it this way, God, your years are throughout all generations. Of old you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will endure. They will, yes, they will all grow old like a garment. You will change them and they will be changed, but you are the same and your years will have no end. Egypt was a mighty power, but it would soon pass away and no longer be feared. Now, now that's the scene. God, who are you? I am the I am. Tell them the I am sent you. What does that mean? He's beyond our comprehension. He is self-existing, and he is unchanging. Now, I want to apply that to us. Why does he say it there at that spot? Well, think again about Moses. Israel is enslaved, hopelessly enslaved to this world power, and a spiritual darkness has crept in that is worse than the physical slavery. They've been there nearly four centuries, and they have lived generation after generation, drifting from the truth that Abraham, their forefather, knew, living among Egyptians who worshipped golden calves. If you don't believe Israel was drifting, all you have to do is see how they act in the book of Exodus. Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and on. Clearly, the people of God here, while they must retain some knowledge of God, some knowledge of the God of Abraham, they have long since quit being careful that they hold on to the truth about him and they have embraced lies and idolatry. Moses is going to tell them about their rescue, and they want to know which God is going to rescue them. Think about the task. You're dealing with 600,000 people that have largely become idolatrous. You're dealing with a nation that is mighty and when you say to them, your God is going to rescue his people, they don't know who your God is. And you're a man like Moses who himself is ignorant of God. So God says to them, this is what you need. You need to understand these things. I am incomprehensibly great, I am not to be compared to any other. It's not that God is bigger than the Egyptian idol that you've been worshiping. It's that God cannot be compared to the Egyptian idol that you've been worshiping, that God is not in the same category as the Egyptian idol. He is incomprehensibly above every Egyptian idol. God is also self-existing. That idol was built by somebody. The God you're about to belong to has never been built by anyone. He's nothing like them. He is unchanging. They will grow old and turn to dust, but this God will never be altered. Now, these are the things they need to know. God is not like any God you have come into contact with in your four centuries of, of Egyptian life. You have to begin everything by rethinking God. Everything about the history of the Jews from this point forward, will be affected by how carefully they take what God says about himself here. Do they grab hold of the fact that their God is the I am and unlike any other God or not? And to the degree that they grab hold of that, they are a distinct people. Well, for us today, I said Moses is in the same kind of place that we are. How do I say that? We live in the midst of a spiritual darkness. American evangelicalism, normal, middle-of-the-road churches that mean well, are as far from the truth of the Scripture at times as the Jews were. So, we still have the right phrases. We still have the right name for God. Jews would have had that too. But we have so long lived in this kind of shadowy land that... The God of the Bible, when we read these accounts, we just don't know what to make of them at times. Long ago, we added a little worldliness and a little of the. made a little room for man's pride and pragmatism, and a few generations passed, and the next generations did a little more and a little more until there are some churches where the people are as clueless as any Egyptian. I performed the funeral for a very kind man once who had attended the church for some while. He was, he grew up Roman Catholic, and then he attended the church where I pastored. Really great guy. His wife didn't attend very much with him. When he died, I was the one to do the funeral, and so I showed up at the funeral home, and his wife said, I'm sorry, there's going to be a delay. And I said, um, okay, that's fine. You know, I'll just sit here. She said, we, um, he had a dog he really liked, and so I had him put down. She didn't like the dog. She said, I had him put down. We're going to put him in the casket with him so they can be together in the afterlife. And I thought to myself, lady, you've come. You've heard me preach. You own Bibles. They're all in your home. How can you think like that? How can you know nothing more about God in eternity than an Egyptian did who buried little toys with his children so in the afterlife they'd have someone to play with? In the town where I pastor, one of the largest churches of conservative church, a Southern Baptist church, the pastor was preaching the funeral for a Muslim that I had been witnessing to. The Muslims, a Muslim man married an American lady and they had a child, the child died. I'd been witnessing to the Muslim man because he was very aggressively anti-Christian and threatening and scaring the wife and child and... So I tried to befriend him, gave him a Bible, I talked to him about the difference between Americanized kind of what he was looking at, and then the true thing of Christ. And and when the pastor preached the funeral, the Southern Baptist pastor said to him, "You will see your child in heaven because you have faith." But he was a Muslim, so he was asked later, "You said he had faith. Has he been converted? That's wonderful." No, he said, he's, "No, he's still a Muslim." But you said he'd be in heaven for his faith. Well, he said Muslims have a type of faith. Do you think that we're living in a day that, is, that, that the world is bad and, and Washington's bad and Hollywood's bad, but the church is a wonderful, bright, somewhat persecuted and shrunken group? We are as clueless as the Israelites were. So what do we do? Well, there's... Well, no need to rant and rave against each other and no need to despair, but what we can do is go back to what God did here. He means to be kind to these people, so he starts by saying to them, I want you to know that I'm nothing like any God you've ever met before. And really for us, that's the starting place as well. Yes, we know God if we're Christians. We know God through Jesus Christ and we know something about him, but there's so much more and there's so much of the world's view of God that's clinging to what we think we know. We really would do ourselves a great deal of good if we would go back and say to God, who is it that I belong to? Who are you? Same type of darkness. Everything about the way we live when we go home tonight. Everything about the way we live when we go to work tomorrow morning and uh, or uh, Monday morning and everything... W- about the way we do church Sunday is going to be based on what you think of when you think of God. Let me give you another parallel. It's not just the same type of darkness that we're dealing with where we have religious people who mean well and who do not do know a lot of the right words, but somehow there's a lot of wrong views of God mixed in. But the second parallel is that there are a great, there's a great promise given to these people, and it's a really hard-to-believe promise. Moses comes to these people, and he gives them All these statements from God. God will rescue you. God will do what he promised Abraham. Finally, we're going to leave Egypt. You're going to be brought into this land. Isn't it an occupied land? Yes, it's already occupied, but God will hand it over to us. It's a rich land flowing with milk and honey. Think of the odds against any of that occurring. 430 years before Moses meets God in Exodus chapter 3, God met Abram. And gave a promise regarding all of this, but it's been 430 years. Our country's not 430 years old. If God gave a promise to some of those Mayflower folks coming over and they passed it down, would you wake up tomorrow morning and risk the happiness of your marriage and your family and your work and your church on a promise that was 430 years old and soon after it was made? 70 Jews, 70 move into Egypt. The next generation they're slaves. I mean it doesn't look like the promise is going to be fulfilled. Now they're 600,000 slaves. God has given us in Christ in the new covenant promises that make the Exodus pale by comparison. Paul says it this way, what God is doing in the new covenant is so extraordinary that what he did in the old covenant is almost as if it has no glory left at all when compared to the new. So you think about the promises that God has made every believer. Not super believers, every believer. Every believer will be transformed into the image of Christ. Every believer will be brought victoriously through this life. Every believer will stand before God for eternity Without fear, nothing to hide. I mean, you think about all the statements. Every sin will be forgiven. Every sin will be uh, forgotten. Everything we need for godliness is given to us through Jesus Christ. 2,000 years ago, those promises were made. Now it's been 2,000 years, and the king left this planet right after he made those promises. Can you live on those promises? Are they enough? Yes, they are. If. The God that you belong to is the I am still, who is incomprehensibly glorious, who is self-existing and unchangeable. Any other God, I don't know. Let me give you a third parallel, not just great promises and the same type of problem, but... Israel had such small views of what God intended to do for them. How high did they hope? Well, the most they seemed to hope for was freedom from physical enslavement and a new land that would be all theirs. But God had so much more in mind. He would make them his people and he would be their God. They would be his children. He would be their father. They would be, of the only people on planet earth, the ones who had access to him. God would dwell in their midst. God would give them a law to guide them. God would make them the vehicle through which the Messiah would be brought to earth and all nations and all peoples and tribes and tongues would be blessed. And all they wanted was their own little patch of land to grow their crops and build their houses. Israel had to see how big God was. The I am sent Moses in order to hope for anything more than a patch of land. What do you expect from the Lord Jesus Christ? How do your views of God reflect themselves in what you expect? When you read the statements of the New Testament about the New Testament church, if you read the prayers of Paul, like Colossians 1, which we'll look at tomorrow, when you read those prayers, do you think, I just really don't think that we can expect that in the year 2013. If you catch yourself thinking that way, that God has somehow altered, ultimately what you're saying is what you believe about God is inadequate. I don't really believe that the I am sent Jesus of Nazareth. I don't believe that Christ is the I am, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Christ has promised us so much, but... Do we believe that he will bring that? Do we live on that? Now let me draw this to a close because really this is just the introduction to the rest of the weekend. We live in the crisis of an adjusted, shriveled deity. We have the right words. I know that you have the right words and you have right books. And I'm not saying that you don't know God. I'm saying that for every one of us, like Job, Even if God were to say of you, you are the most godly on earth. If God were to say that of you, I would say, he could still say like he had to say of Job. You haven't yet seen me, Job. You've heard a lot of rumors. But I'm about to do things in your life that at the end you will say, I feel like I only heard about God before, but now I've seen him. The enemy asks you what God is going to deliver you. I mean, look at your life. You still struggle. The people around you in a church say, what God is going to deliver us? Where do you begin? Where do you get the right measure for the words that we're going to talk about that you read every morning? And the answer is really very simple. We go to him and we ask him the right thing, right? Who are you? And when He tells us, we take those things from the Scripture and we make sure that we wrestle with them until they get under the surface and they become part of our life. And that becomes our unchanging environment for the rest of our days until we see Him face to face. Let's pray. Our God, You are the incomprehensible God, self-existing and unchangeable. But Lord, those words, we feel like we're little children who are at the beginning of our ABCs. God, what does it mean that you and you alone are those things? And what does it mean that we might know you and draw near to you through Jesus Christ and walk with you as a child walks with the Father? God, we pray that who you are would grip us and that when we look at the struggles in our marriages and with our children and in our community and forgive us, Lord, our own wicked minds and slow, cold hearts and we're tempted to despair at the size of the enemy and the constant hounding of our own sinfulness and weakness and temptations, Lord, we pray, give us grace to ask you the right question. And we ask these things for the glory of our Lord. Amen.